And as we come to our reader's theater scripture reading, let me offer these words. Mighty God, send your Holy Spirit to speak peace that the good news of this age may be proclaimed through your word, which stands forever. Amen. It gets darker much earlier. I don't like this deep foreboding darkness. The light is coming. I keep looking down, trying not to stumble and fall. The light is coming. I don't know what to expect. I am pressured on all sides to be here or there and to do this or that. I have no time, no peace, no hope. The light is coming. Look up, do not be afraid. But if I look up, I might stumble. I don't know what's ahead for me. The light is coming. Do not be afraid. Lord, where is the light? It is here on your path so that you won't stumble. It is here in your heart so that you will not fear. It is here in your soul to give you hope. Lord, help me to see and feel the presence of your light. Dear one, the light is given to you and to all the world. Trust in the light. Wait. Watch. It is here. Year one. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting. Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. A voice said, shout. I asked, what should I shout? Shout that people are like the grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in a field. Grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Oh, Zion, messenger of good news, shout from the mountaintops. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. 
You will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. Behold, the Lord comes bringing hope and peace. Prepare the pathways for the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, readers. So our sermon this morning is entitled, Hope Isn't Optimism. God seems to have fashioned us with a hankering for home and yet with the same strange sense of reality that stirs the feeling that you're never quite there. It might feel like nostalgia for a hazy yesterday that maybe wasn't as marvelous as you recall it. But what is nostalgia anyhow? The word derives from Greek roots meaning an ache for home. Maybe there's no memory of such a place, but you still want it, you crave it, you're compelled by the quest of such a place. You need to figure out just where and what it is. Isn't Advent precisely this search for home? I've noticed our daughters who live far away from their home and their home culture faithfully keep many of our family traditions in the best way they can there. And it quite often involves food they remember from home. Here's a chance for you to respond in the chat box. What is your comfort food? You can click on chat and then that will appear. And then there's a little box at the bottom where you can type it in. And then be sure to click enter. Pizza, chocolate, mm. homemade bread, mm. Ben and Jerry's Americone dream, mac and cheese, yes. Lasagna, mm. Warm homemade bread, ice cream, peanut butter and jelly, yes. <laughs> Macaroni and cheese, tea with milk. <sighs> Good. Now is everybody hungry and thirsty? <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm sure the rest of you, oh, homemade chocolate chip cookies. I couldn't leave before that was mentioned. Okay. <clears throat> Ann Tyler's novel, Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant, tells the story of Ezra Tull, who inherited Mrs. Scarlatti's restaurant, where he'd worked. He renamed it the Homesick Restaurant. Instead of a menu, you'd share what food you were homesick for, and they'd cook it for you. It's all about our longing for home, a place we feel safe, comfortable, and cared for. We feel it particularly at holiday times when we look forward to reuniting with loved ones 
And we feel it acutely in times of loss and sorrow when everything looks bleak. Despite the gloom and foreboding, we might feel that life as we know it is over. But as Frederick Beekner says, no matter how much the world shatters us to pieces, we carry inside us a vision of wholeness that we sense is our true home. And that beckons us. There is a home-shaped hole in the heart of every person. Today, comfort conjures up a cloud of images ranging from lazy boy recliners to Royal Caribbean cruises. Comfort food is all about the personal satisfaction that can come from macaroni and cheese or mango and sticky rice. Creature comforts are all about having the nicest stuff. Even the words luxury and comfort are linked to describe things like the all leather interior of a Lexus. Comfort connects to all that is warm and fuzzy and satisfying. Hence, we don't usually connect the idea of comfort to strength or power. Comfort in winter is putting your feet up after a hard day of work, sipping a hot beverage, and enjoying a cozy fire crackling on the hearth. Comfort, we think, is a soft, not bold word. However, the etymology of the English word comfort is a combination of the Latin words cum fortis, or with much strength. So the theological concept of comfort is likewise vigorous, not passive. In the Heidelberg Catechism opening question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Well, that word comfort is a word with muscle. Before it's a sigh of relief, comfort comes first as a bracing in your face message about what is what in life. Although today's scripture, Isaiah 40 verses one through 11, begins with a double promise of comfort and an end to sadness. Verses six through eight discomfort us and make us profoundly uneasy, allowing us to appreciate the profound depth of our only comfort. What is the context of our scripture today? Why do the people of Judah addressed here need comfort? Scholars point to the bad news that Jerusalem has fallen, that the temple has been burned to the ground, that the Davidic monarchy is over, and that a whole new cohort of Jews are being exiled to Babylon. With that bad news, life as Israel knew it was over, and Israel will have to stop putting their trust in the temple, the city, the kings, and the land. God's word of judgment and punishment has been fulfilled. So now Israel is ready to hear the good news of comfort and joy. Their exile will be over and they will be able to go back to their homeland. Isaiah 40, one through 11 is a message of hope. 
vague optimism won't cut it for us in this second Sunday of Advent in the year 2020. Comments like, it'll all work out, or it's all for the best, sound so lame. Public health experts warn us of a coming hard winter, raging pandemic in the United States and surging elsewhere in the world. Yes, scientists' heroic efforts have produced effective vaccines, but they won't be widely available for some time. Many people suffer from fatigue, fear, and loneliness. We here at Covenant Community Church grieve the passing of a much loved member of our congregation this past week. We need to hear the same words of hope that Isaiah spoke to the exiled people of Israel. We also long for home, for normalcy. If ever there was a time for comfort and hope, it is now. What is the comfort? What is meant to comfort us? Well, first, let's pull some things together from last Sunday. This Advent, we're looking into the meaning and implications of incarnation. Jesus, whose birth and life we celebrate, is our God enfleshed as human. Last week, we, we reflected on the kingship of Jesus, and we were awed by Dr. S.M. Lockridge's recitation of That's My King, as he poetically listed all the names and qualities of our King Jesus. And this morning, we consider him as savior. The name Jesus is an English approximation of the Hebrew Yeshua, which means God saves. The angel told Mary that this name would describe Jesus, that he would save people from their sins. So again, what is the comfort Isaiah speaks of? The comfort is that sadness is ended and sins are forgiven. The comfort is that their exile will be over. The comfort is the proclamation in verse nine that your God is coming. The comfort is the presence of the already and yet to come God in Jesus, Savior. He is the tender shepherd that holds us lambs close to his heart, that nurtures his people like a shepherd tends his flock. He is strong to protect them, yet leads them gently. Now Isaiah's prophecy also includes a strong call to repentance, as well as words of comfort. John the Baptist quotes Isaiah verse three, in John 1.23, when he explains his identity and call to be the one who prepares the way for the Lord, he preaches repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He is the voice of someone shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord. In this time, roads were literally made ready for the coming of a dignitary dignitary. They filled in deep depressions, leveled hills, and straightened the extra curves. 
Thus, John invites people to prepare spiritually for Jesus coming by admitting their need for a savior. We read in Isaiah 40, verse 4, that God comes in the wilderness of Judah's exile, just like God came to them in Egypt in the Exodus when they fled from slavery. A wilderness separates them from their homeland, yet God is not deterred by wilderness. The searchlight of God's judgment points out the need for heart transformation. And the response of repentance is the preparation that Isaiah and John announce is essential to clear the way for God's coming. As we mentioned last Sunday, we are not fond of talking about judgment. Maybe that's why people say things like, why is your God so angry? Particularly this year, when some Christians have identified our catastrophes as judgment. God's judgment brought all these things upon us as punishment. Pandemic, economic recession, fires, hurricanes, racial conflict, and on it goes. However, we know that these events are a result of human action. And there is often a need for a word of judgment, particularly for us in this time. God did not cause it, but the pandemic has revealed atrocious inequities and racial injustices in American society. We hear that black, indigenous, and other people of color have suffered the effects of COVID exponentially more than white, middle, and upper min income folks because they most often live in crowded housing without medical insurance, and they must work high-risk jobs or have even lost jobs. Those who can work from home live in more secure circumstances. Unfortunately, the pandemic has also accelerated a long-standing process where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Thousands of cars lined up at food banks in the days leading up to Thanksgiving. More than 25 million Americans reported not having enough food to meet, eat. In Vermont alone, nearly 7,000 Vermont renter households could be now living in homes with serious quality problems, such as incomplete kitchens or bathroom facilities, coal heat or no heat. Why is this the case in a country with incredible wealth and resources? Without question, a word of judgment and a call to repentance are entirely appropriate responses to this news of systemic injustice. The church speaks prophetically to call out evil and speak truth to power. Of course, none of us are personally righteous in all we do and say. We do wrong and neglect doing what is right. We desire to be transformed to be more like Jesus, 
But first, the Spirit of God points out the things that we don't see, those things that restrain our spiritual growth. And we take a repentant posture as we admit these things to God. We have confidence that God forgives, heals, and forgets. God's grace informs God's judgment. Only when we take our sin and God's judgment seriously can we see the miraculous width and depth of God's grace. And God's comforting grace doesn't leave us groveling in the dust of shame and despair. We, the church, have the opportunity to show our world what repentance, forgiveness, and grace looks like in the way we treat each other, in the way we interact with those outside our church family, and in the way we respond to evil systems in our culture. Church, we have the same prophetic task as Isaiah. We call evil what it is and declare the good news of God's saving grace. But it doesn't end there. We are to offer a radically different vision of what can be. God's vision of shalom, which in Hebrew means wholeness, health, peace for every nation, for all people. We're called to find specific ways we can model shalom for our world. Last spring, we saw churches lead and participate in massive peaceful demonstrations for racial justice. But that is just the beginning of the work that needs to be done to dismantle the insidious myth of whiteness. Your leadership team has been reading and discussing rediscipling the white church. We're asking God to change our hearts and give us a vision of what our church could do to use our privilege. Our wealth of resources to lift up those around us in need. When Jesus comes again to establish his kingdom forever, the whole world will see his glory. We'll acknowledge him. How can we confidently hope for this? This vision is a sure hope based on our reliable God. Verse five says that God has spoken. And verse eight tells us that in contrast with human fragility and impermanence, the word of God stands forever. We can trust that God judges, saves, and comforts because we've seen God's glory, grace, and power. We trust God's word to be true. Isaiah encouraged the people of Judah saying, the God who is coming is almost here. Tell people that. Climb to the highest mountain and shout the good news. Don't be afraid. Tell the people. Your God is coming. This message must have come as both a comfort and a challenge to them. And it is for us as well. We hesitate to boldly say that God is here in spite of all we see around us. To proclaim the incarnation takes courage and faith. But this 
is our calling in these dark days. The God who keeps his promises has come in the person of Jesus, God incarnate. And he's coming again. He alone is the source of true comfort in our world of sadness. God commissions us to reveal God's presence and reality to those who can't see God. We present Jesus in our words and deeds so that those who can't see can still come to know God. The news of God's coming gives exiles comfort, both in ancient times and today. As verse 10 says, Jesus will come and rule justly. He will see that justice is done in a world filled with injustice and no one will es escape his scrutiny. In a world filled with wrong, he will make all things right. Not only will he come with awesome power to do justice, but also with infinite tenderness. He will care particularly for those who are weak and vulnerable, like a shepherd with lambs and mother sheep. We tend to want Christmas to be a time that makes us feel special and loved. We want nostalgia, sweetness, and charm. But without the Advent reminder of our vulnerability and need of a savior, a promise of comfort means little. We don't bring the advent of God incarnate by our Christmas pageantry, pageantry and celebration. The incarnate one comes into our church and into our neighborhood, into our divided cities, into crowded hospitals and nursing homes, into jail cells, into the tents of traumatized refugees in camps, and into our own, sometimes reluctant, rebellious hearts, in order that new life and new hope of the new creation can emerge from all that brokenness. In the midst of darkness, light breaks in. In the midst of despair, hope erupts. After long waiting, a branch will sprout. The complete fulfillment of God's promises has not yet happened, but it is coming. This is Advent faith and Advent hope. Advent hope is not the same thing as optimism, which relies on positive thinking and rose-colored glasses. Advent hope acknowledges the pain of present reality, but it also dares to see God's presence in the midst of that pain. Advent hope, the hope of which Isaiah speaks is grounded not in anything we can see, not in politicians or bank accounts or the market. This hope is grounded in God's faithfulness. And for that reason, it is true and real and solid. We don't observe Advent because our world looks like a Hallmark Christmas movie to begin with. The Advent of Christ is because our reality is often far away 
from all that is peaceful and pretty. Our world needs to see a holy and transcendent God who is also personal and intimate. May we live that hope. Your God is here and yet to come. Live like you believe it. Amen.